Welcome to the Digital Decisions Podcast, featuring funders, thinkers, and implementers who are driving national digital transformation. Each episode, we go beyond the sound bites and explore with our guests some of the tough questions we all need to figure out as we transform our societies using digital tools. I'm Kate Wilson, your host, and I'm joined today by guest researcher and fellow podcast host, Sardik Sadapathy. Sardik and I met last spring when I joined him on his Talking DPI podcast, and he's been a valuable mentor and friend since I conceived of the Digital Decisions podcast. He's joining me for these first few episodes while I get my podcast sea legs. And in these first few episodes, we're focusing on the topic, which is digital public infrastructure. We're digging into the biggest challenges facing the uptake of this approach and learning more about it in general. To shed some light, both on the recent political momentum around digital public infrastructure and some of the financing discussions that will be required for it, we're joined by the CEO of CoDevelop, an impact investment fund, CV Madakar. Madakar and I met several years ago when he was at Omidyar, and I've enjoyed listening to him and learning from him over the years as we've had these conversations about digital public infrastructure. But Sardik, I know that you have known um, Madakar for even longer, so I'll let you do the honors of the introduction. Thanks, Kate. So yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've known of Madhukar for a long time now, uh, primarily through the LAMP Fellowship, which is was a program within PRS Legislative, an organization that he founded uh, back in India. First talked to Madhukar about like, I think, two and a half years back when I received an email from uh, an alumni in my graduate school talking about a fund for digital public infrastructures that was going to be set up called co-develop and I got curious and emailed Madhukar a bunch of times figuring how to how to just understand what's happening how to be part of this and I ended up working for the summer for me one of the almost unique opportunities was to see Madhukar and the initial team set up co-develop from ground up and it has personally been one of my uh, highlights but let me just quickly introduce Madhukar to our listeners so Madhukar leads leads co-develop leveraging more than 25 years of experience and impact investing policy and scaling non-profits he comes to co-develop from Omidyar network where as Managing director, he built out their global work on digital identity and digital public infrastructure. His previous experience includes setting up PRS Legislative Research, a research institution that focuses on making the legislative process in India better uh, informed, more transparent and participatory. He worked at the World Bank on issues regarding parliamentary capacity building in you know various countries as well. And then helped with scaling some of India's largest uh, non-profits, including Pratham. Madhukar, welcome to Digital Decisions. Before we get started on on the DPI-specific questions, it would be great if you can just share a little bit about your journey. How did you go from, you know, investment banking to founding PRS and Akshara and then now to co-develop? And and if you could also share some of your learnings from, from this whole journey. Thank you, Kate and Sartak, for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. You've already described my background in some detail. But I want to add that over the years, I've always been obsessed about scale. And when one thinks about scale, the way that we will need to approach the work we're doing is somewhat different. And when you're working at scale, you often don't know what 10 steps out might look like, but are always thinking, what is the next step and how can I do it right? Could you talk a little bit more about that link for you between digital identity and then the term that's now being used called digital public infrastructure, but that wasn't in place in 2021. And could you just share a bit more about how you saw that and kind of that link to governance? Because there's something that you have a thread in your life, it seems, as if you know, there's a passion for this giving back and there's a passion for how to improve governance overall and that link to digital. How did that become apparent to you, I guess, during that time at Omidyar or even before? 
the connection between governance and digital was a natural one because if digital tools were going to be used for public welfare programs then and if if as a result if there was any exclusion or something that wasn't quite adding up it was a serious governance question and therefore my starting point was exclusion and therefore what should we do to make that make you know make make sure that ex- exclusion is not caused by digital and um, how do we minimize that incidence the uh, evolution from digital identity to digital public infrastructure happened over the over the next sort of 3 to 4 years digital identity itself was obviously taking off in india with the hundreds of millions of people enrolled at the time digital payments started kicking in in india from 2016 onwards and um, as i traveled in africa as part of my work uh, at omedia network the conversation evolved from a digital identity framing to a digital economy framing to start with because people started talking about payments much more and then there are other layers of digital public infrastructure as we have now come to know of it that have evolved in different parts of the world which then provides a different way of thinking of digitization and so that's a natural evolution over the last few years for me the earliest uh, discussion about the phrase digital infrastructure in my memory is goes back to about 2019 or so when uh, we started scoping out what does a dpi fund look like which didn't materialize for for until 2021 so let's see this connection of digital and governance as a very logical connection especially as economies around the world embrace digital as a means to get to many development ends that they care about you mentioned you had conceived of the idea of the investment fund co-develop just before the pandemic but could you say more about the specific mandate and what you consider sort of in scope for co-develop and maybe what you think is out of scope for co-develop and things you don't do the uh, mandate for co-develop really is how do you help countries accelerate adoption of digital public infrastructure that is inclusive safe and equitable so it's a broad mandate but we recognize that this ecosystem has a lot of partners and as a primarily a funder our task is to enable other partners to be able to help countries and other stakeholders engage on this on this question what we realized is while we remain primarily a funder there is a lot of need to curate ideas and opportunities that don't necessarily exist and to understand what needs to be curated you need to have a good sense of what's happening on the ground or what's not happening on the ground to understand the gaps and therefore curate those ideas and opportunities so i think where we've landed is to figure out how to work with many partners while also understanding what is not working on the ground therefore we can then build those pieces that are missing but also strengthen what needs to be strengthened and are there a specific areas of investment focus how would how would you classify some of those categories of things you invest in as we've noticed uh, in the ecosystem um we realize maybe there are four areas where we need to invest one is on the policy side alignment of government under helping governments understand both the implications what the regulations need to be what the grievance redressal might need to look like and so on and this is typically offered by institutions there have trust with the government world bank comes to mind because they also lend money to the government undp comes to mind because they have deep relationships in many countries and there are others in the ecosystem other development banks bilaterals and so on and often although the world bank is a world bank they don't have dedicated funding to provide this kind of support to countries and therefore they have a trust fund that that might need external support so we've been thinking about what are those kinds of funds and uh, entities that we can back who have in turn deep connections and trust with government that's one area uh, of of work and in and grant making for us the second area of work and grant making is to support what we call digital public goods these are 
open source software providers who have been building out open source software to enable countries set up layers of digital public infrastructure that might enable the transformation that the countries seek to have. And uh, this, we believe, will be roughly half of all of the funding that we will do to enable the people who are building the software to be able to go and offer it, support countries in developing their own infrastructure. The uh, third area of support and um, grant making that we deeply care about is what we call enabling local. This, we believe, is critical for many reasons. Um, We don't think of this just capacity building in the traditional sense. We think of this as how do you seed seed fund some of these initiatives in different countries so that local developers get involved in shaping the ecosystem that they, they want to build for themselves, for the country. This goes beyond the traditional capacity building of training and so on. We're trying to figure out what that model might be where there are hubs of local activity, software development, policy thinking, and so on that could come and shape those conversations in the respective country and perhaps in the region. This includes engaging with the government, civil society, technologists, think tanks, education institutions, and so on. That's the third aspect of our work that we care deeply about and are continuing to focus on. The last aspect is uh, research to understand what's working, what's not working, understand the policy landscape. Think of the narrative, what is working, what is resonating with people and governments, what is not resonating with people and governments. That's the fourth bucket of work that we have. Those are the four broad buckets that we've identified for ourselves as to where co-develop can add value. And I think broadly speaking, after a year of working, we think those are probably the right areas for us to focus on. I just want to ask one quick follow-up on that, specifically on the enabling the local ecosystems. I think that's tremendous. And I want to dig in just a little bit on some of the need might be around systems integrators to help a government put it all together. And some of it might be around enabling the local app ecosystem to build on top of a DPI structure that that perhaps is in place. How do you think about the balance between those two things? Because both are really big problems. It sort of gets hand-waved around the local enabling ecosystem, but I haven't really heard how people are digging into how that problem gets solved, particularly in places where the engineering talent may not be attracted into some of the government services that might be running some of this, but also building the applications on top of it. How do you think about those two and that divide? I can't say I have a perfect answer, Kate. I think that uh, this will somewhat depend on the country you're working in and the priorities that they set for themselves and the ecosystem of contributors they want to rope in. The uh, private sector engagement is critical and we are considering two streams of work. One stream of work where the DPGs we fund the software open source software code bases we fund are in turn reaching out to private sector actors in different parts of the world and training them so that they can then the private sector actors can then bid for contracts based on the dpg so there's a there's an interest alignment there where the dpg says hey i'd like for many countries to benefit from the work i've done and part of how we'll do it because i as a dpg will not bid for contracts Part of the way I'll do it is encourage, enable, train local private sector vendors to then go uh, go ahead and bid for these contracts. That's one track. The other track is a more generic one, which is somewhat underdeveloped in our own heads right now, is how do you build the broader narrative for the private sector's role in the DPG ecosystem, cutting across any specific DPG? And therefore, how do you think of incentives for, for the private sector to want to pick this up and treat this as a serious source of revenue. There are some emerging examples from different countries. So we're trying to learn from those and shape that in the in the year ahead. For a moment, if we just stick to that uh, particular challenge, that just developing the local ecosystem, you mentioned these couple of things as being different from capacity building. Uh, we also just wanted to explore how big of a challenge that is, particular local capacity building, both in terms of 
the let's say the developer ecosystem that's there you know government research all of these different areas we yeah, are how critical is that especially now that we are stepping on the gas on mm-hmm. implementation quite a bit see one of the realizations for us is that unless it is the the software that they're exposed to or they might use in the national infrastructure unless they can see under the hood many countries are saying hey i don't know what's inside is this good enough for me how can i engage because you know we don't want a fly in fly out kind of solution and therefore we think that's a good sign that governments want to engage therefore our task is how do i enable that is a question we are asking ourselves right and part of this is to set up a local hub that then becomes a trusted source for advice for the government some of it exists in some countries in some form or the other in some countries they don't exist we're going to be in the next year 2024 looking at six to eight such centers in different different parts of the world depending on the inbound interest we're getting from governments and there's a lot of interest so we just need to figure out how to then pick which ones to set up early where we can learn uh, the most and where we can contribute the most in the process so even as this idea of setting up these network of institutions expands we've got enough learnings from the early adopters and and uh, what's working and what's not working so uh, i believe that uh, this will vary from country to country there won't be a formulaic approach given the hunger of many governments to do digital more and more we believe that governments will also engage on this much more intently in the in the next 20 12 to 24 months and treat this as a priority we're not asking governments to fund a lot of the stuff maybe they will maybe they won't but as long as they have a partnership mindset to say i want to leverage leverage this resource for the benefit of whatever i'm trying to do that's a good starting point right this is not an ivory tower you know researchers doing what they want but really in service of what the government is trying to build i think that that uh, you know tight connection may be necessary especially in the first couple of years because then it becomes an important national resource for the country right so that's the that's the hope that's very interesting and as you mentioned probably we'll we'll get into some of the recent events that have happened and just the political interest that has slowly that's um, you know building up uh, thinking deep about dpis there's still that this whole upstream challenge of mobilizing sufficient financing and even sustainability models as we go ahead not just getting things started but just thinking through uh, maybe the next 5 years 7 uh, years how do you see that challenge as and do you have any particular thoughts around that maybe this is a good time for me to um, switch gears a little bit and just think about what lessons can we learn from our traditional brick and mortar approach to infrastructure right we have roads we have electricity we have telephones we have a bunch of other pieces that constitute very core infrastructure for economies to grow now we have models of how this infrastructure is sustained now for instance roads are mostly publicly funded publicly maintained in most parts of the world electricity which is again a public utility is privately provided and people pay for it so the question for us as we think about digital more and more is exactly the same same set of questions applied to a new set of infrastructure pieces that we are putting together there are in the case of uh, digital infrastructure who funds the internet and who maintains the internet what's the model there gps i would consider the internet and gps as the original digital public infrastructure layers that was created by the us government federally funded but public assets so the gps is i think fully maintained by the us government right now and it's a resource for the world now i'm not saying every piece of public infrastructure will be funded by somebody that in serve that's in service to the world but even for national governments it's a it's a clear choice do i want to build and maintain this infrastructure because it's useful for me or should I look for some donor money and therefore do it only when the donor money is there or i just abandon all of this right it's a very clear choice so i don't have a straightforward answer about what the business models might be and so this is up for evolution and i think uh, each country will find a different model and 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 so there's a bunch of evolution we'll have to go through uh, on on broadly digital infrastructure the other point that i wanted to bring up uh, bring about is this the phrase digital public infrastructure uh, evokes 
many emotions amongst people, not always favorable. And I believe that this technology-first framing has resulted in a number of problems. And uh, I, I take the blame on myself, not that I'm, I define the space, but I've been a contributor to the space and I've continued to use digital public infrastructure to explain the work we, we're trying to do. And I understand what it means, at least in my mind, but it means different things to different people. And that always complicates because the mental models that people come in with have a bearing on how they receive this idea. The, uh, in many Western economies that I've uh, engaged with and as I travel, I notice that when you talk about digital public infrastructure, there are a couple of ideas that people are worried about. This word public, oh my God, is this going to be controlled and managed by the government? We'll all be, you know, stooges to the government and so on and so forth. I want to point out to, again, electricity and telephony and to clarify that public doesn't necessarily mean government-controlled, government-owned uh, infrastructure. That's the first. I sometimes wonder whether people are generally concerned about the word public or is just skepticism about an idea that wasn't invented here. The other piece is... The digital invokes this idea of the panopticon and, you know, the whole world being controlled and so on and so forth. Maybe we're heading there. I don't know, right, with all the AI stuff that's going on. But there is an inevitability about digital that nobody will deny. The future is digital. I think that we, are, we all accept. So we have a choice, not as to whether to be digital or not, but how to be digital. And so I go back to a brick and mortar example for a moment, just to explain how wise we were and how we built that out. In that when we built roads, the health department didn't build out its own roads for ambulances and the education department didn't build out its own roads for, for school buses. It was roads. It was there for the government, for the health department, for the education department, for the defense department, and for the private sector. So we, we saw that as basis on which the economy will grow, right? In the, in the digital space, the conception seems to be missing because of shared infrastructure seems to be missing because look at the history of digitization in the world. 40, 45 years ago, when America and Europe began digitizing, they began digitizing one business process at a time, right? That's how we were experimenting with digitization. And the moment they got some con more conviction about a business process working, because, be working better because it's digitized, they knew uh, digitize another business process and another business process, another agency and so on. So the legacy <clears throat> in the last 45, 50 years is, has been to think of siloed digitization because of how it's panned out in Europe and America. Now, to implant that legacy system of how digitization has happened with the infrastructure thinking that we want to take from the brick and mortar economy of shared infrastructure, like roads, telephone, telephone and electricity and so on, that is in conflict, Right. The only mental model that's that's prevalent in, in the West largely and, and therefore much, much of the world is a silo digitization. And so the alternate is the, the shared infrastructure model that we can, again, learn from the brick and mortar economy, which is very hard to penetrate a different mental model. That's a discovery I'm sure we all have that bringing out another model of how to think about this is very, very challenging. I'll give you a number that just might clarify this point a little bit more. Gartner Research, which is which many of us know is a well-regarded research institution that puts out research on IT and trends in IT and so on. In 2022, they put out a report which estimates government spending on IT. I speak from memory here, but I think they estimated that governments in 2022 would spend about $680 billion on technology, governments, in one year. Of that, they'd estimated that about $610 billion would be spent by what they call mature economies, which include America, Europe, Japan, Korea, China, and so on. The other $70 billion was going to be spent by 155 countries around the world. So if you believe that all countries in the world needed to achieve the same level of digital maturity as America and Europe, even if you had 100 World Banks a year funding all of this, you would never reach that, reach that goal. So it's almost a no-brainer that unless you have an alternate conception of shared infrastructure in the digital space, you will never be able to get to the digital maturity that you really want to have. 
right? So I don't know where the contest is. It seems like, you know, either you digitize smartly using shared infrastructure or you never digitize around the world. To me, it's not a choice. You brought in a lot of complex components there, which I want to unpack a little bit and maybe push back on one part of it, which is sort of how the internet was founded and that it was founded in silos. I actually think that at its purest ideal at the beginning, you know, and still, if you look at the incorporation today by W3C or the Internet Society, that that is still very much a digital public infrastructure model and that the Internet actually started as the purest form of, yes, there were use cases, academic journals, et cetera, but but that it was actually a pretty pure and utopian thing that we were going to create this ability to do it. I think where it fell down is when historically government appropriations to continue to fund that type of model stalled and they needed to then seek other sources of financing that then layered on top of it a lot of walled gardens, which then created the silos that you talk about today. And I want to come back to this idea of infrastructure overall so it was something even I remember my first board presentation at Dial's a little bit of history for you all. I used the stats of how many of how infrastructure had been funded across the US. And it comes to your question about inclusion. And even today, even with government funding, fully 15% of people can't actually get internet access, but also couldn't get, sorry, couldn't get electrical access, much less at that time, the connectivity access. And and some of that is because of the layering of the private sector on top. So I think what you're starting to dig into is this really important discussion, which is how much is owned by the government and what's their role? And this should be decided by each country individually. I think we're both very aligned on that. How much of it is then controlled or stimulated by the government? How much of it is stimulated, let's just say, by an investment economy And I don't care if that's private or public sources. It could be donors. It could be many other things. And how much of that is done by the people who will then make returns off of it? I think your research focus at Codevelop is going to be really important about sort of unpacking different models of that financing. But you're raising some really important points, I think, about how this is all going to go. I'd like to sort of bring us back, if I can, a little bit to where the momentum on DPI is coming from. Is it really demand from countries? Because you you talked about this. And I think that there is a demand for countries for digitalization. But I don't know, to your point about, do they really understand DPI, that there's a demand yet for DPI? Or are we pushing a concept that then is may or may not be well understood. Where do you stand on that? The uh, models, the financing models question is is open, uh, Kate. I don't I don't want to pretend that I know the answers. I'm just looking for models that might have worked in some other context in some other way that we can learn from because this is going to be an ongoing question for us collectively, for countries more importantly over the next many years. The uh, problem of the technology-first framing is that um, increasingly, as I interact with partners who are working with countries and sometimes countries directly, the learning and takeaway for me is don't talk about technology. Talk about the things that they want to solve and, and help them think through the alternatives that they have that they can reach the scale and inclusion that they want to have. Uh, I was traveling recently and I was discussing this with one of our partners. They said, oh, my God, it's so difficult to align all the government ministries around this idea. And I said, look, that's not a good starting point to align all government ministries. Can you pick a ministry, a single ministry and a single use case? And can we work with that ministry to address that particular use case so that, you know, they see the benefits of a certain way of thinking and acting without having to necessarily talk about technology? and then they said, oh, my God, you have to align the finance ministry and this ministry to actually make something happen. I said, uh, how about this? Uh, how about we have a ministry, a program and a single district in the country where there's a champion officer who says, I want to do this differently and I have the mandate to do it. And 
it was a reflection for me that a lot of the narrative on India is about, oh my God, we've got a billion identifications and 10.5 billion authentic uh, UPI transactions last month and so on and so forth. But that actually misses the point. Every one of these things that have now become billion something started in a single district, in a single, in a state, right? And then they looked at me and said, oh my God, it's going to be difficult to convince the district officer of the of DPI. I said, for God's sake, please do not talk DPI. Talk about the solution. The design of the solution is incumbent upon the DPGs, the ecosystem that's working with the government to help them develop the solution. And all we're saying is it needs to be interoperable, scalable, and that's what you want to focus on in the design. But do not talk to the district officer or DPI. The technology is going to be confusing and means many different things to many people. Please do not talk DPI. So I think increasingly our learnings, when we say demand for digitalization, digitization, how you want to call it, is absolutely prevalent in every country in the world, right? There's no doubt every country is trying to become more and more digital. But I don't think there are mental models that are available that are helping them understand what scale looks like at population scale, right? And the current model of siloed digitization is not going to work. That is obvious, at least from an economics, clearly fiscal perspective, right? It's just not going to work. And therefore, the conviction that we have and I, and I hope that many will bear me out on this, is that unless we have an alternate conception of what digitalization looks like, countries will not be able to get to the kind of inclusion that they want to get to. Is this perfect? The answer is no. I don't know. But it is definitely better than the alternative of silo digitization. That much I'm convinced about. Just seeing this in the context of, uh, you know, there's some of the recent events that have happened in where especially DPI was was a big focus, be it the ANGA, the recent G20 uh, under India's presidency that, that happened. How much of th- these discussions do you see happening in the, on those forums, especially from a political point of view? The understanding, the, you know, the concerns, the promises that everybody sees. How have you seen some of these conversations pan out in those particular forums? And that leading to, you know, the 15-5 initiative, if you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think the G20 conversations in 2023 have contributed to the socialization of the I, the, 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 the acronym DPI and the phrase DP, Digital Public Infrastructure. But I still believe despite all of the efforts and discussions and and the consensus statement that came out of the India G20 presidency, I think there's a very wide variety of understanding of what DPI really is. And so, and that will continue. I don't think it will go away anytime soon. Which is why we we have been using infrastructure thinking as a better phrase than DPI. So no matter which solution you start, can you go with infrastructure, infrastructure thinking so that your solutions are scalable, interoperable, and so on. The 15.5 campaign that was just launched is really an effort to rededicate ourselves to supporting countries and communicating both a sense of scale and urgency to the the project. The reason for the sense of scale and urgency is not because it catches my fancy. It is that the countries that we can see around the world are digitizing at a, at a pace that is unforeseen in the past. They're spending more dollars to digitize. And the longer we hold on from providing an alternative model to digitize, the only model that's known to the world is siloed digitization. And we believe that it's going to be super expensive, incredibly hard to maintain as, as time goes by. And the worst part is once legacy systems get built out, it's going to be extremely hard to change them. So, the sense of urgency and scale is really not because of some fancy idea, but however soon we can go and help countries imagine an alternate way of actually building their infrastructure, I think the better off they'll be. That's the, that's the reason for the campaign to rededicate ourselves to saying we both need the scale around the world, but also do it in a time time frame that is beneficial for the country. Otherwise, there are too many legacy systems that we'll have to deal with uh, that will become impossible to deal with, actually. We started this whole podcast with your your interest in population scale. And the last point, if I, if I could sort of summarize it, I guess, quickly, is that 
by taking a very specific use case of interoperable infrastructure within a country, but starting in one location that you can then help the government or, or just the country. I don't think we even need to say it's the government, but you can help the country understand the value or the benefit of digital public infrastructure. Did I capture that roughly correctly? What a small pilot does, it increases conviction on the part of the government that this solution works. Now, they don't, uh, ideally, I'd, I'd like them not to know about digital public infrastructure. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but a solution that these guys, this ecosystem is talking about actually works. And that the next layer of, infra, the, the, the next solution I want to build on top, I can do it at a, at a lot less cost than the, the the power infrastructure really is again to go back to the brick and mortar economy example is once you lay out the sewer lines in the city the incremental cost is only to connect my home to the sewer line i don't have to rebuild the sewer line every time the the incremental cost of adding a bus that moves from boston to new york is just the cost of adding that bus it doesn't have to require building the road all over again right so as you know the current model is the entire solution stack is rebuilt every time every time you digitize and that is both counterproductive expensive and actually you know blows my mind as to why we do that even now despite having an alternate model and if the problem is that that we are calling it digital public infrastructure and people have a problem with the phrase we'll drop the phrase but at least can we agree on rebuilding the stack every time is expensive and I might hazard to say stupid and counterproductive for countries. Do we agree on that or not? So I absolutely agree on that. I think the thing that I might caution is that I can think of multiple instances just from my old work in health where reusable and connectable and interoperable components were built that could have served education, agriculture, other use cases, but weren't because there wasn't this, let's say, vision that was coming from the national government about how these things might put together. So I might say, I agree with your point, and I think it needs to be married with in the same way that that sewer line needs to be clear that it's going to possibly connect everybody's house, but you have to dig the line to it. People that needs to be transmitted and communicated that there's this larger vision and that so that the things underneath that are built up have something to connect in because always where those health systems fell down was they had nothing to connect to, or there wasn't the financing to directly link IDA with IDB and make them cross-verifiable so that it's that it's the glue between the two and the data exchange layer that has been hard. I think India gets explained well as sort of this all-encompassing visionary system, but at least from some of the conversations that I've heard, it was kind of more lucky. And Estonia would even say the same thing. You know, we kind of got lucky. We put this and then we said, we're going to make all of this stuff work together. And so maybe it's not even focusing on the, I agree with you, not focusing on sort of digital public infrastructure, but the interoperability of this and that long-term vision of the approach to make sure that these systems can all work together. Whoever owns them. I agree, Kate. I, I, would, I would say only one thing that is somewhat different, which is I wouldn't expect every country to have this visionary idea as to how they might want to do it differently. I would probably take some of that blame on to other agencies such as the institutions that we've all represented in the past and currently represent that we've not been able to make a convincing case both to ourselves, to large funders like bilateral and multilateral agencies that there's an alternative imagination that's even possible, right? Because whether we like it or not, we know that these institutions have enormous 
influence on how countries develop their strategies. A lot of us, even today, these uh, many multilateral institutions go with point solutions because they're, they're keen to address a particular problem. If I want to go for an emergency cash transfer program or food distribution program, I take my own pro- program. I don't integrate that with the government system. I'm desperate to get what I want to get. I don't blame them. Therefore, the foresight for countries to have infrastructure in place in anticipation of something is what we've learned from our brick and mortar economy. I keep going back to that because we're not looking for new wisdom here. We're saying, what can we learn from that? What we from what we've already done? And we seem to want to miss the point consistently because we're in some mental trap that somehow there's an only one way to do it. And that's how the West has done. And that's not okay. And it's not scalable. And I go back to population scale because one of the things that will need to happen for anything to become population scale and drive inclusion is the cost of doing that particular activity has to drop and drop and drop. If we can't drop the cost of actually serving the the last mile, last person on the on the on the ground, we will not be able to achieve inclusion. I I go back to the India example I'm familiar with. You can do digital cash transfers and get payments for people with a smartphone, for people with a feature phone, and people with no phone. Right? That's a design question. It's an intention question. Right? It's not 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 always a money question. And so. Population scale is non-negotiable. The how is the negotiable part. Driving down costs is not negotiable, right? So if you want to have expensive digital siloed solutions, you can never drive down the cost because the cost of maintaining all of this becomes as a, as a percentage of GDP, a very significant cost, and the governments will not be able to bear it. So we have to have an alternative model. I think, though, that isn't that sort of two points blended in there together? Because there's one part, which is the design for what type of hardware. So you could have a very inclusive system that covered all hardware examples and connectivity solutions that are available today. But that will be extremely expensive, public or private. I don't care who's built it, because you have to design for for so many different types. But it will be more inclusive. For sure, because this is the problem with connectivity today with last mile and in every country in the world, it doesn't matter where you are, is how many people are you serving on that specific type? But the people that you are not serving are generally the ones who are most left behind. And so to me, it's a little bit cost versus inclusive. And so how are you going to balance some of that, some of that questioning? Because at the outset, right? Yeah, I, I don't think it is cost versus inclusive. I think it's a design mm-hmm. question. Uh, for instance, people, you know, I, my guess, I'm just, I'm taking a rough number here. A few hundred million transactions, digital payment transactions happened in India last month with people with no phone. That's not a cost. That's not a cost question, it's a design question, right? And so every society has a certain set of assets that the society can leverage and in most countries, especially developing countries, we have an assisted model uh, for digital, right? For many people who are not literate, who are not comfortable using digital uh, devices, people who don't have access to digital devices, the assisted model is a very important channel. And assisted model doesn't necessarily mean the costs are going up. It's, 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 it, the question is, how do you design something that works in an assisted model that can scale to people that don't have devices? Which is why I want to separate that from the hardware and cost question. It's a design question in my mind. I've seen a lot of literature that sometimes accurately, sometimes not so much, conflate availability of smartphones in everyone's hands to digitization, right? I don't think in many countries around the world that digitization necessarily equals having a smartphone in everybody's hands. I think that's a mental model that we might do well to take away because that's not going to be reality for a long time to come. And if you really want inclusion, it's a the, the non-tech design is how do you leverage the assets that you have in communities is as an integral part of DPI thinking as much as it is on the technology side. Maybe a clearer or cleaner way for me to ask the question is the, do you design for scale 
where everyone can access services. Let's just take ID and payment from the outset with whatever they have versus, yeah. you know, versus narrowing that and saying you're going to get there a little bit longer. I don't disagree with it. I'm just trying to set for countries that are really weighing this choice, who are thinking about where do I only have 2G connectivity? Where do I not have devices? I think their choices are going to be, do I show a national scalable model first that can cover the 60% who actually can, and then I'm working on the rather the rest of the 40%? Or am I designing from the outset to that other time? And will that stop me from really reaching scale because I'll have left all of these people behind from the beginning. And so I think they're really going to struggle with that. How do I do that? And yeah. And India was very fortunate to have low connectivity rates and low handset rates, whatever. And I don't think it has to be a smartphone. I wasn't trying to conflate to a smartphone, but I was just saying those two factors were there from the beginning. And many countries don't start from that place. And if I, if I may just add on to that, how much does innovations in service delivery models itself you know add on to this and because that also plays a big role that's a huge part to referring to the non-tech side of things uh, how does that also add up to this which is when i say design i think the important thing is you know it's well beyond technology design it's about designing systems for inclusion right and technology is one enabler the second thing i want to say is this notion that Infrastructure first has to be built out to realize the gains of infrastructure. I, I want to somewhat address. Uh, when I say infrastructure, it's turned out that in India's case, ID came and then payments came and then some other things happened. Our strong sort of push to many people is please, for heaven's sake, do not sequence things. Sequencing things slows you down so much while there's pressure for you to digitize on the one hand, then you say this ID system is going to take three years, you nobody's going to wait. There are many more systems that are going to get digitized and in a way that you create many more silos and can never scale and leverage the infrastructure you're trying to create in the first place, right? So what we're saying is that take a use case, take a technology architecture approach that then enables connecting back to the pipes when the pipes are laid. And if you don't conceive of your technology architecture in a way that then connects to some pipes when they're laid out, then you're always going to be the trap of actually creating the whole stack and creating silos, right? So that's our big learning. There is no sequence. Mm. The sequence is the problem you want to start. The sequence is think about population scale, 100% inclusion, Think about design. Tech is one part of it. The mm. non-tech part is equally important for inclusion. If you want the inclusion agenda, it's not about the 2G or the 3G or the 4G or the access to digital devices. It's about how do, how do you design for people with no access at all and might not have access for the next 10 years. And to your point, Kate, I don't think it's okay to design for 60% of the population then worry about the 40%. It's never going to work. Not in democracies, not in functioning democracies, and it's not fair for not fair for the people that who don't have devices, and you're actually making them worse off, right? So, I don't think it's a choice that you know we can do it for those who have devices and then worry about those who don't. Uh, we must design for inclusion. So, so I just I want to correct maybe an impression. I wasn't saying that you're designing for forty percent who who will never get it. I'm just saying I, where do you sort of start because. Going back to that sort of crawl approach, if you're designing for a district, you're designing for a district. That's that's a very selected group of people. But you, I mean, what I was hearing you say is that your advice would be be opportunistic on the infrastructure components one can put in place based on the use case, the funding, other things. But I think the part that's a very critical part that maybe isn't brought out enough is that you need to have the architecture and the design plan. And that's where I go with that kind of that vision that is there. So it goes, okay, you're bringing in this. We're going to make sure that it ties back into, you know, our overarching goals about how this is going to sit together and laying out technical things like the standards and the data dictionaries and the, you know, how you're going to li link those components together. And 
I, I think that that might be a nuance that in this current set of components is getting lost because, and, and I was even frankly a little confused when you were talking about taking that sectoral approach, because I was like, that's kind of the way it's been done for the last 25 years that has resulted in this mess of siloed systems. So I think maybe the nuance is it's the silo and the order doesn't really matter. The vision matters a lot. And there has to be funding in those sectoral use cases that is earmarked to tie back to a future thing. Yes, uh, well said, uh, Kate. Uh, I wanted to say in the case of the single district, the design is population scale. The, the piloting is in a single district. I just wanted to clarify that. The design is always population scale, right? Um, and so that's an important thing. The other thing that I wanted to explain is that when you mention the word earmark, it seems like a bit of a punishment, uh, an imposition. <laughs> the, I, I want to say that smart design doesn't necessarily mean you have to spend more, right? So it doesn't have to be a forced allocation to say it has to somehow connect to the pipes. That is, in fact, may not even cost more. So, so I think it's a it's a question of a mental commitment to a particular approach that I want to have those little, you know, the, the ability to connect back to the pipes is a mental thing. I don't think it's a cost thing, right? That's just wanted to clarify. I wanted to say one other thing that um on the sequencing thing, which is important. You see, in the government, sequencing may be less important, but in the private sector, sequencing becomes important because private sector business models thrive by building the whole stack and then use that as a moat to prevent any other innovation. So if the infrastructure comes later in the private sector, there are so many incumbents who want to quash it because the nature of infrastructure is that it increases competition and innovation and incumbents don't like it. And I, I can give you any number of examples. Uh, I can take the US example, for instance, no, just to illustrate the point, when a Venmo builds out the instant payment system, it is a Venmo to Venmo. It's not interoperable, number one. Number two, the moat that Venmo has is that I have the pipes to all of the banks. And if somebody else has to com come and compete with me, they have to build the pipelines to all the banks themselves. So expensive, time-consuming, and in a two-side marketplace problematic, right? And therefore... Venmo or any other company like that will want to prevent anybody who lays out public pipelines to all banks because then Venmo will have to compete not on the on the basis that they have pipelines uh, to all banks themselves, but on the value they offer. It encourages more competition and innovation, which is why if you have too many incumbents in a certain business model in the private sector, laying the infrastructure later is going to be a lot more difficult than in the government. So sequencing in the private sector is extremely important, less so in government. That's one. The second point I wanted to generally make is that a lot of the thinking in the DPI space, at least in our ecosystem, happens to be around government services. Needless to say, that is critical. Uh, must We must prioritize whatever we can do to help drive inclusion in a safe and equitable manner. But I think the nature of infrastructure is that it's really a thin layer of capabilities that enables government and the private sector for the most part to be able to do many things. And I go back to the internet and GPS examples. I go back to the electricity and roads example because roads were created so that buses and, and things could move on it. In, in, in The internet was created so that you can connect computers. If you look at the Physical transactions in our economy today, if I go walk across the street, buy a cup of coffee, give them $5 for the cup of coffee, I'm physically there. They don't have to worry about identifying me. They don't need a network of computers to figure out, you know, to connect with me at all. I'm physically there. If I'm providing a service of delivering a, a particular thing, I don't have to know where your location is because I'm physically there and I'm collecting the thing in, in hand, in my own hands. The payment of $5 I give them is the $5 they receive. I'm not losing any money in the process. They're not losing any money in the process. Then there's no 3% revenue tax that the credit card companies charge. And so there are many things that we take for granted in the, in the transactions that we do in the physical economy that if you were to be a fully digital economy, what are those layers that you need? 
you need discoverability, which is why network of computers becomes important. You need the internet. You need to be able to locate the service place where you give the service, which is why the GPS becomes important. And if you combine the GPS and internet, you have Uber and Amazon and all of these location-based services that have come up, right? What you then need for higher, um, you know, integrated transactions, you'll need to be able to identify yourself as I am who I am every time I say who I am on in a digital space. You can't see me. So you need a digital identity layer. You need an instant transaction settlements that's costless, ideally, right? For the for the individual and the small business, you can't milk them to profit some big corporations. So how do you design systems that are inclusive, instant payment systems? that are interoperable, don't create moats for some one company or two companies. How do you do that? And then you need a way to verify credentials. For instance, if I'm a handyman working with a certain platform right now, if I want to move to another uh, platform which takes my services, can I take my four-star rating to that new company? Can I carry those credentials with me? When I apply for a job with you saying I've had experience of 10 podcasts how do i carry the credential with me barring the the traditional saying you know trust me i'm i'm a good guy i have a degree from a certain educational institutions how can i carry that degree uh, credential with me i have a health record as you know the us is notorious for being not being able to give people control over their health records it's my my data can i port it the way i want it and show it to who i want to show it and it's so difficult so credentialing verified credentialing digitally signed, non-reputable are going to be a very important part of the infrastructure layer. Doesn't matter for health or for education or for, or for a handyman or for an Uber driver. How do I carry my credentials with me where I want to go and use it the way I want to use it? So I think infrastructure by nature does one thing, one thing really well and at, at a massive scale, right? Can I just dig into that just a little bit? So I agree with those five layers. I would just add one other thing, which is allowing the data from those services to be anonymized and exchanged then so that others can build applications on top of it. Because I think that's the piece of India stack that people I don't think talk about enough, quite frankly, which is that ability to then build and innovate on top of the app ecosystem. And that was the, that to me was the most brilliant thing about it. Yeah. Um, and and I guess I just want to dig back into your sectoral use case. How does that then work? Because I think that's where I may still be a little confused, which is because what I'm hearing you talk about is national scale infrastructure that I could build. And then, yes, I could apply it in this one place to show you what that could look like. But each of those are relatively complex systems. So how does it work when it goes bottoms up? Bottoms up is um, almost always more complex because of the distributed nature of how this will get set up. Which is why I think a collective endeavor to paint an alternate vision and, and, and approach to digitization is important by all stakeholders, not just any one entity or two entities. And so no matter what solution government you, you procure, whether proprietary or uh, open source or any other form, or you build your own, ask the question whether you're building it in a way that connects back to pipes as and when they come up. <clears throat> That's all we're saying. And top down is a lot easier. <laughs> you can mandate things and, and make things happen. When the conviction for top down is not there, our best alternative is to go bottom up, show some use cases, show that they work, and show how connecting back to the pipes as an important enabler for lowering costs of delivery in the future for other services and scalability of these services far better than uh, if it had been siloed. The idea that India could transfer money to 200 million women's bank accounts was made possible because the infrastructure already existed. If you had to create that infrastructure from scratch in a siloed manner, it might have cost India a billion dollars in two years to build. Or for that matter, the Coven app that try, you know monitored, administered two, two, over 2 billion vaccines was built, I guess, in a week, maybe with two engineers, right? And if you were to build out the siloed stack approach of that, that might have cost a billion dollars and two years to build out. So 
the economies of scale is, is just incomparable, I think. I, again, to go back to the brick and mortar economy, every time a factory needed to transport goods from their factory to a port, if they had to build a road every time, it would obviously be super expensive. So I, I think logically thinking, logically speaking, there's almost just a no argument but for taking an infrastructure approach. I think the mental model is what we'll have to collectively address. And it's, it's a non-trivial task. Mental models are the hardest, right? So I think the connecting back this layered infrastructure approach, public rails, private innovation approach is the story we'll have to start telling people. And again, <laughs> when roads were built, government built roads for many things. The interstates were built after the World War II for a certain reason by a national mandate. The economic activity that, uh, you know, even today when when governments do a, a cost-benefit analysis of roads, it's always the economic activity that's going to get built on it. It's not that I will be able to take the extra school bus uh, on the road, but it's really the economic activity that will be driven on this, uh, that, that, on this road. So I think the case for thinking of this infrastructure as societal infrastructure, not government infrastructure, that is very, very important, which is why when I look at a government digital service or USDS or something like that. I worry that they think they, they miss the public infrastructure, nature of, of infrastructure they're building out as a societal asset, not a government asset. So my fond hope is that increasingly uh, infrastructure is seen as a benefit of society and not just to government. If we'd think of the, the whole uh, DPI ecosystem currently, you know, we talk about still ID payments, data exchange, we're talking about these layers, but... What are some of the gaps that you see, both in terms of uh, the infrastructure uh, conversation and the non-tech conversations per se? What are what are some of the big gaps that that you see currently? And on that thought, what are some of the strategies that you that you think public private institutions can focus on bringing the conversation back to those gaps? My fond hope, uh, Sartak, is that. We don't talk about DPI in terms of ID data and uh, payments and data exchange. If we can do away with that, I think we'll, we'll make a lot of progress. The artifacts are coming in the way of the, the, the narrative that, that we can shape. The narrative is really about saying infrastructure thinking is embedded in how our economies run. And if you don't think infrastructure thinking, or uh, uh, incorporate infrastructure thinking into anything that you're building out, you're actually doing great disservice to your people, right? Forget the artifacts. The artifacts will emerge. In fact, when we engage with countries and through our partners these days, what we're saying is forget the DPI framing completely. Leave that to the technical experts who work with your government officers and build out systems in a way that have the ability to plug and scale as opposed to starting off with ID data, uh, payments and data exchange. I think that framing is doing great damage to our, our overall agenda of in helping countries drive towards inclusion using technology. And maybe this is the same <laughs> answer you could give, but or, or same answer you would give to this, but if you could go back five years and sort of with a magic wand and do one thing differently, would it be essentially <laughs> that, that you would sort of eliminate that phrase? Absolutely. You know, <laughs> really, really, we the benefits of hindsight. <laughs> We've all been party to sort of creating this monster that we're now trying to deal with. And, uh, you know, I, I wish, I wish we hadn't had this sort of sequential thinking and the artifacts based framing and so on and so forth really, you know, I, we all know these artifacts are necessary uh, to be a fully functioning digital economy. But to start off with these artifacts has, I think, you know, complicated the, the discourse, complicated the core value proposition. What is the core value proposition? That every layer you build, in, build on infrastructure is, is cheaper. It'll drive down costs. It'll drive inclusion. And it will, if with the right design of both the, the technical and the non-technical, be on balance massively better off for your, for your citizens and people than it is if you were to build siloed solutions, right? That's the story. Now, we've complicated our own lives by building ID and payments and data exchange and all of these artifacts, which are all necessary. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you buy a car, 
you're not looking at what kind of metal was used on the engine and that's you take that for granted right you nobody looks under the hood to say oh my god i need to know most people and so not nobody uh, the te- the technical expert should worry about it right when i'm building a car i need to worry that its seat belts are great the uh, engine is fantastic it's most efficient and so on and so forth the users really say hey it's a great car i like the blue color let's go for it right and so how do we simplify this entire conversation saying buy a good car don't worry about what's under that as long as you know it's working and it's trusted it's is is certified by the right kind of professionals around the world you should just trust it right that's how we've gone ahead with our cars and so there's no reason we need to keep you know thinking about pontification pontificating about the artifacts you don't know what kind of brake system your car has of course at some point you'll advertise as a certain feature that might become a selling point that's all great but those are all you know under the hood stuff we're so caught up with stuff under the hood that we're really not telling the story of the car we're talking about all of those pieces and that's a problem maybe lewis hamilton wants to know what's under his hood but you're right i probably don't care as much <laughs> yeah. many um, most people yeah. don't care about most, it. most people know that's yeah. working and that it's working that it reaches everyone and that their data is protected, I think, are, are sort of the three things in this that are sort of unique and different. In a car, it's, is it safe, right? Is it going Absolutely. to, you know, is it going yeah. to safe? Is it going to break down? Is it safe and is it reliable? Yeah. And I that's, think maybe it's great... selling the attributions of this is safe, this is reliable, it's been road tested, it's been yeah. road tested by a lot of different places, and yeah. that's the story we need to say exactly. more. Very well said, um, Kate. I think the the story is this delivers on the promise that it it, it can scale. It it's it's uh, definitely more efficient. It can uh, be designed to population scale, especially with the intelligent mix of tech and non tech layers. And this is safe. This will actually make your make make you get better services. Keep your data safe. What are those attributes? You really you said it really well that make this more useful for you, more relevant for you, as opposed to the artifacts. Fair enough. I'm just going to ask one last question very quickly, and you've been super generous with your time. Thank you. What advice would you give to a country that's just considering investing in digital transformation? And I deliberately am using digital transformation versus digital public infrastructure, because I think it's about how a country is thinking about transforming its ways of delivering services. What decisions do you think that they really need to start with first? When I hear digital transformation, I have my own mental ghosts that come up. I worry about a lot of consultants spending a lot of time and money on building those digital transformation strategies. I worry about the the incredible number of boxes and arrows that come up. I worry about the dependencies that they show. Unless you have this, you can't do this. And therefore, there's a linear model of, of, of change that happens. And I deeply worry about the big dollar numbers that invariably go with the digital transformation ideas, right? So that's my ghost of, mm-hmm. of phrase digital transformation. Yeah, I think uh, about it very differently. So it's interesting. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so these are ghosts. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm acknowledging that myself, right? Just like people have ghosts about digital public infrastructure, right? So the, I think the, the point I would generally say is start with what you have, start where you can, start now. You don't have to have a perfect ID system to actually show uh, dramatic improvement in beneficiary experiences on many things. You don't have to have the perfect payment systems to do it. So I would say don't wait for the perfect system. Even with what you have, we can get a lot done with infrastructure thinking. That would be my message to countries. Uh, You don't need grand strategies. We can build conviction one block at a time. You get onto one step. It solves something. Then you look at the next step and build on it. Uh, Yes, it's, it's fantastic if you have a grand vision for using the infrastructure approach. But I can understand you might not have it today. Let's build conviction one step at a time. Very well said. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity.